always like to uh, welcome everyone in the manner of my teacher, Swami Muktananda. He began every program by saying, Sabko bare sanmane kesat prem se ridik swagat, which is Hindi, and it means, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would say, every night he'd spend five minutes or sometimes even ten minutes on that statement, and he'd say, the essence of spirituality is welcoming another person in an open-hearted manner with love and respect. And um, you can get very involved in spirituality. You can read 500 volumes of esoteric lore, and you can also practice many obscure practices, and you can search uh, in Tibet and India for uh, practices which are hidden on parchment for centuries, and no one knows. Uh, but the essence of spirituality will always be is that simple, to welcome another person with respect. And though you may be learned in all this esoteric law, if you can't welcome another person in that way, with love, then uh, I pity you. <laughs> then this is not true spirituality. So in that, in, that, um, in that spirit, I welcome you all. Seeing the Shiva nature within every person, not being oblivious to your vile personal qualities, but seeing the essential Shiva nature in everyone. And I hope that in my case too, you see my Shiva nature and being somewhat oblivious of my vile personal qualities. Uh, but that Shiva is within every person. That divinity is within every person. And uh, we practice to discover that place, to get in touch with that place, and to make that place shine forth. First, a little greater percentage than it's been shining forth, and then increasing that, and finally, till it, it shines uh, always, because it's our true nature. <clears throat> Shaivism says, Na Shivam Vidyate Kvachit, maybe the most famous statement in Shaivism, there is nothing that is not Shiva. There is no place that is not Shiva. There is no thought, feeling, or emotion that is not Shiva. In our terms, we would say what that's saying is there is nothing that is not consciousness. And we had a very interesting uh, debate this week. It caused a lot of uh, consternation, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> um, Nonetheless, it was a very good debate, and uh, we're trying to see whether we could prove to all our satisfaction that everything was consciousness. And I don't know if we did. Did we do it? Probably not. We probably can't do it. So we're going to do a different way today. We're going to assume that everything is consciousness. This is called intellectual fascism. <laughs> No, it's called an intensive. <laughs> a great uh, spiritual teacher that uh, we uh, study quite a bit here is uh, an Englishman named Morris Nichol, who was a, uh, a, a psychoanalyst. He was a student of uh, Jung, and uh, actually, more importantly, he was a student of Gurdjieff later. And um, he, during the war, the Second World War, and later he at a little ashram in England. And he says this, he says, we live in what is invisible to others. Our bodies are invisible 
space, they are invisible space. They're visible, your bodies. But our thoughts and moods and fears and anxieties and feelings are invisible and constitute where we dwell in the inner psychological world. It is in this inner world that we really live. Those of you who've been here before are used to me talking about the fact that we live in two worlds simultaneously, the inner world and the outer world. The outer world is uh, matter and things and other people, and the inner world is the world of emotions and thoughts and memories. It's the, uh, the subjective world. And that's what he's talking about here. <clears throat> so one could say that we're all invisible. That's a wonderful notion, isn't it? That you're actually invisible. Only your bodies are visible. The real you, all the real stuff, is invisible. In fact, a lot of us try to make that uh, always more so. We try to hide that. It's terrible what goes inside, goes on inside, isn't it? You don't want anybody else knowing about it. So we, uh, we do all kinds of things, plaster a grin on our face and do all kinds of things to keep it well hidden. Um, through our visible bodies, Nicole says, we try to signal to one another in a clumsy way. But actually we're invisible and nearly unknown to one another. Well, a great spiritual aphorism says that uh, you only can know another person when you know yourself. And the deeper you go, in yourself, uh, the more you know another person. That's why a lot of people who met my teacher and other great beings I've met um, get intensely paranoid because they saw immediately at a glance that this penetrating vision seemed to uh, go right through them and seemed to know them completely. And that was terrifying experience, like being naked suddenly in the middle of, of, a, of a crowd of people. Very unsettling experience. <clears throat> but, but um, you know, I, I saw that vision in my guru, but it was a benevolent look because he was looking not at all our, our, our vileness, but at our divinity. He saw the essence of Shiva uh, at the core of it. <clears throat> anyway, Nicole goes on. This is strange but true on reflection. We do not only live in the outer physical world, but also more and more so in an inner psychological world. If we're in the same place as another in this inner world, we understand our signals better and perhaps even do not have to signal in the usual manner at all. Sometimes we call this love. <clears throat> and it's also true that as we um, go deeper into our own uh, inner self, our capacity to love expands and our sympathy and understanding of the way other people are constructed and our compassion also because we realize that, that uh, everything that human beings have held within them, we also hold. Sometimes we don't want to look at certain aspects of ourselves, and uh, we deny them and we project them outwardly, and then our friends tell us, maybe even our beloved tells us, you're like this. We say, I am not, nobody says that. <clears throat> How come everyone else thinks I'm a terrific person, but you, my wife, my husband, you say I'm so rotten. How does that happen? Well, that's their function. <laughs> so. so anyway, we debated whether everything is uh, uh, consciousness. Um, and I think that uh, we certainly agreed that everything in the inner world is consciousness. 
Uh, and while it seems to me directly and profoundly and intuitively true that everything is consciousness, it's very hard to convince another person of that unless they have uh, an inner awakening. So we won't go there, but Shaivism does say that everything is consciousness. So we're going to listen to Shaivism now and just ex let, this, let the, the thoughts of Shaivism, let the understanding of Shaivism wash over us. What would it be like to live in a world in which everything is consciousness, in which we are actually the source of everything in front of us? <clears throat> Shaivism says the very first sutra uh, says, Chaitanya Matma. The very first statement in all of Shaivism was in the Shiva Sutras, which was uh, uh, written or discovered by a sage named Vasugupta in the ninth century. Said Chaitanyam Atma. Chaitanyam is consciousness and Atma is the self. So it means the self is consciousness. And as I started to think about that particular statement, that really had an illumination for me because it was saying that me, my essence, who I am, is consciousness. Myself is conscious. Oh, that's who I am, consciousness. Then I thought that's true, that when, when uh, I've seen people who have died, I've seen their, their bodies, it's been directly clear to me that that person is no longer there. The body is there, but whatever really constituted that person was gone. And then I began to see that I myself uh, live in my body as though it were uh, a vehicle. And in Ganeshpur, I had a direct experience of that one time when I was uh, sitting and meditating. <clears throat> and suddenly I felt myself levitating, going up to the top of the meditation room. And my eyes were closed, and I thought, hey, Ripley's believe it or not. <laughs> this is actually what I thought. You know, you do, do you have Ripley's believe it or not? Yeah, you do. I've been through this before. Um, so, you know, because I remember in Ripley's Believe It or Not, they talked about the Indian rope trick, where, um, you know, they sit on a rope and the rope suddenly uh, goes up like a snake. And um, I don't know. <clears throat> and they had a lot of stories from India in Ripley's Believe It or Not. Maybe that's what conditioned me early. You know, people sitting on pillars for 100 years and lying on beds of nails. Anyway, here I was going up, and my first thought was, Ripley's Believe It or Not. I'm levitating. And I thought, this is amazing. And then I looked down, and to my disappointment, my momentary disappointment, I saw that my body was still down there. And then my second thought was, well, you know, not Ripley's Believe It or Not. My second was, holy cow, I've left my body. And the next thought I had was, it's true. It's true what I've been reading. I am not my body. Because whatever I was was up there while the body was clearly down there. And, and also I noticed that I was in a state of great ecstasy. I didn't know why that was, but as the body ages, I associate, uh, I understand more and more the misery of being trapped in this cage. Um, but um, let's not go there. <clears throat> That's why they call uh, the death of a yogi Maha Samadhi, or the Great Samadhi. Samadhi is a state of trance. So people shouldn't be afraid of death. Death is the great ecstasy. So all the ones you leave behind are going to be miserable. 
but it's going to be a great ecstasy. You should prepare for it like a great experience. But I didn't mean to talk about that today. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean that I'm planning to die soon. So <laughs> I, can, I can read your minds, don't worry. <laughs> it only means my neck hurts, that's all it means. <laughs> so... So Chaitanya Mahatma means the self is consciousness. It also means the essence of reality is consciousness. Or as we say it, consciousness is everywhere, or everything is, consciousness is everything. Uh, Shaivism doesn't equivocate about it. Here's a quote from a sage named Bhatta Sri Vaman. He said, as all objects, now listen carefully to this, as all objects are known only when they rest on consciousness as support, not by themselves, therefore all things exist only as known. Now you may think that there's a pretty fancy leap there, but he's saying that, that you, you only know an object like this eyeglass case, it's only known when, it, when, it's, when consciousness rests on it, isn't that true? <clears throat> and so consciousness then, but he goes further, he says, it doesn't exist if it's not known. That may be where the leap is difficult. <laughs> is that a difficult leap? Are we willing to make that leap right now? Here in the intensive? Yes? Nick, in your house, can we make this leap? Oh, thank you. Okay. So then he goes on and says, so one should identify himself uh, with consciousness. So Shaivism says everything is consciousness. Shaivism says everything is one, is one stuff, universal awareness. And when it's one, the next thing it does is become two. It just does. <clears throat> and hence we have Shiva and Shakti, or yin and yang. Uh, <clears throat> it becomes yes and no. It becomes light and dark. It becomes the in-breath and the out-breath. It becomes what Shaivism calls prakasha and vimasha. Prakasha is the pure awareness, just the receptacle of all awareness. And vimasha is the self-reflective. Prakasha is associated with light, with, with Shiva. And vimasha is kind of the self-reflective way that Shiva knows himself. And this is often associated with Shakti. So this is Shiva Shakti. And Shaivism in its debate with Vedanta, this is, if this is too technical, just ignore it. Um, Vedanta seems to be saying that, that the absolute is just prakasha, it's just pure light. But Shaivism says, hey, that's only half the story. It's not just pure light, it also has wisdom and knowledge and ability to know itself. The ultimate reality must not only shine, but it must also have this capacity to know itself, just as we know ourselves. We have this extraordinary capacity. And Shaivism says, meditate on these two aspects within you. The pure light of awareness, the light that holds this whole room. Your awareness holds this whole room, doesn't it? There's a light, a light of wisdom that holds this whole room. And then all the specific things and the knowing that's also there. They're both two aspects of, of, uh, of the absolute. 
Shiva and Shakti. You should just listen to this stuff kind of in, intuitively. Don't worry too much about it. <clears throat> and also another duality is the subject and the object. The inner world and the outer world. Subject is over here, object is over there. Throughout your whole life, wherever you go, these two characters will uh, be there with you. Except maybe when you're deep asleep. Now is this true? You go here, you go to Ballarat. Is there a subject and object there when you look around? Yeah, in Ballarat? How about you go to uh, Byron Bay? Is there a subject and object there? Well, it must be English speaking. What about in Paris? Is there le subject and le object? Yeah? Yeah? You think? How about in Iraq? <clears throat> There's always this structure of reality. There's the subject and the object. What about it? What can we say about the subject and the object? The objects are many, right? In Iraq, they're whatever those are, camels and and uh, machine guns, and in Ballarat there's um, dogs. <laughs> what is it? Gold. Gold. <laughs> dogs. Dogs are everywhere. Dog and God. Yeah. Um, so, so th there are many objects, but what subject? How many subjects? Is the subject different in Paris than here? So the objects change when you go to Paris, but the subject remains the same. Now, I want to tell you a terrible thing. You are trapped with this subject of yours. You know, you may, even if you meet Brad Pitt, you'll still be you. You're trapped. Even if you die and get reborn, You'll be the same subject. You just forget that you were that boring one last time. <laughs> until, until you go to your local clairvoyant who says, in a past life you were, uh, you know, Albert Einstein and Queen Victoria. And also they had an obscure life living in Mount Martha. <laughs> you know. You're going to just be this one subject. Isn't that upsetting? What? <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know, I feel quite upset by that right at the moment. You know, like, <clears throat> I can't go on. <clears throat> it hints at the, the possibility that there is only one subject. And as we go deeper into that one subject, we experience ourselves as more and more universal. And we see that there's only that one subject. And that, that's why we have an understanding of other people, because we're really the same. We completely understand. The deeper we go into ourselves, the more we find that, that universality, that oneness that's there. <clears throat> but it's well worth thinking about these, these divisions, these dualities, that they spring up out of the oneness uh, of consciousness. Abhinavagupta, talking about the Shakti aspect, the Vimarsha aspect, 
the, uh, the objective experience talks about the goddess, the Devi. He says, the Devi is none other than the supreme divine consciousness, which is not an abstract idea, but living, throbbing conscious power or energy. The supreme word constantly pulsating as I, aham vimarsha. No one says it like a Gupta. So he's saying that while we know that the subject has that energy of being ourselves, the objects also participate in it. There's no difference. They're only the goddess dancing. Now often we experience um, life as uh, boring and dry. And what the sages of Shaivism tell us is that it's because we haven't made certain inner connections. We haven't connected, gone deep enough, because life should not be that way. When we go deep enough, we make that connection within ourselves, we energize our life. We uplift our life. We bring that energy into everything. And this is our goal as meditators, is to energize that, to come to the truth. The sages, the sages say that uh, the lingam represents uh, knowledge, yana shakti, knowledge, action, knowledge power. <clears throat> and the yoni represents uh, kriya shakti, or action power. And so separate, separately, they don't have, they can't do it. Knowledge power alone becomes kind of like uh, an effete intellectual, full of ideas, full of concepts, can't do anything while Kriya Shakti alone becomes kind of a dumb vital, runs around full of energy doing all kinds of inessential and stupid things. So you have these, the doer who doesn't know what the heck to do and the knower who can't do. You have two pathetic. Then I guess you, you could put the peculiar in there who has a thought and then becomes hysterical. And then, uh, you know, does the dishes and then becomes hysterical. So. So that's. But together, when knowledge and action coalesce, then you have great energy. Great energy. And some of us are like that. We're more on the side that, you know, we're, we're pretty good at doing things, but our doing just makes us run around in circles. And we wear ourselves out. We deplete ourselves. We become toxic. We become filled with. Uh, tiredness and despair from all that. And others us, you know, have all kinds of ideas. We, we even work everything out, but we just end up lying in our bed and <laughs> dreaming on. Dreaming on, like Minavachivi, child of scorn. You know that one? Grew lean while he assailed the seasons. Minava cursed the day he was born and he had reasons. <laughs> I won't go on. That's an old poem. But anyway, not mine. Um, <clears throat> so how do we get back to the truth? How do we make these connections uh, and energize ourselves? We put these two elements, the yin and the yang, the shiva and the shakti, back together again within ourselves. The shiva sutras give us some clues. They say, bija vadnam, one of my favorite ones. Bija is the seed, and Vadnam, Vadanam, is focus on the seed. Focus on the seed. Concentrate on the seed. Concentrate on the seed of the universe. 
This has been a tremendously meaningful sutra for me all the time. It echoes in my brain. <clears throat> Focus on the seed. And from that, I see the whole world is like this, that within everything, every situation, every person, every event, if I focus on the seed, I connect with the shakti again. I connect with the essence again. Despite appearances, despite of the complexity, despite the horror of many situations, at the core of it is that vibrant truth. And so always I try to keep focusing on the seed. And how you do that? You do that in meditation. You go to the core. Right now, focus on the core of your being. Every one of us has some notion about that. We how many can't do it right? You feel you can't do it right? How many have, okay, good. <laughs> You're admitting it for everyone. <clears throat> this, that's a thought that comes up. I don't know how to do that. But if I say, just go to the, go to the center. Go to the center of your body, go to the center of your mind, go to the center of your feeling. Go to the center of the universe as you know it. One of the things about your subject being the same everywhere is that wherever you go is the center of the universe for you. If you're in Ballarat, Ballarat's the center of the universe. If you go then to Paris, Paris is the center of the universe. You take the center of your experience, don't you, with you. Isn't it true? You always take the center. And then people say, oh, you're so narcissistic. <laughs> that only means that you're talking about it too much. You see, everyone else is the center of their universe, so they want to hear about you being the center of yours. So just shut up about it, but everyone is a supreme narcissist because they're always the center of their universe. So focus on the seed. What's the essence here? What's the essence? <clears throat> Another thing that um, Shiva Sutra says, the, it's actually, no, it's not the next sutra, Sharire Samhara Kalanam, which means, and you can't go here without a guide, the reabsorption of the tattvas from earth to Shiva should be accomplished in the body by dissolving each into its cause. Well, I'm sure that occurred to many of you spontaneously. Huh? The reabsorption of the tattvas from, let's say what that means simply. <clears throat> it says that, that there's every, every appearance, everything is linked by causes to deeper causes. And as you peel away the superficial aspects, you find some deeper thing there. You keep peeling away, you find something deeper. And as you keep resolving the superficial into the deeper, you eventually get to the cause of causes, which is consciousness. So you can always resolve everything back. And this is what we do when we do Shiva process groups, self-inquiry groups. You know, very often we get to a point where we where we started out thinking this is the way it is, and then we unveil it, we keep going back and to our shock and delight. It's not that at all. It's some other thing completely. And if we go deep enough, it all resolves itself into the self, and then we have an experience of the upliftment of the self. 
So this is another way of saying it, that you can always go deeper and find the truth. And so when we're in a state of suffering and separation, we are not in the truth. We're in the state of negativity. We're in the state of enmity, hatred. We're in a state of paranoia. And when we're in a state of paranoia, our mind goes around and it examines all the reasons we have to be paranoid. All these people hate us, they're plotting against us, they're doing bad things to us. And, and the mind, in that mood, brings up evidence. But we don't realize that it's not the truth that we're getting, but it's only the mood of the mind. A paranoid mind is brilliant at bringing in evidence of paranoia. An angry mind is brilliant at criticizing and judging everyone and justifying yourself and wanting to murder. It's brilliant at that. <clears throat> so we have to go deeper in those cases. We have to go deeper under that unreality. And as we meditate and we start to know ourselves, we start to realize that that's not who we are. And I often tell the story of Baba. When Baba used to, Baba was uh, a vital as a type. He, he was a very ferocious guy. I knew him only after he was uh, self-realized. Uh, and he was scary then. Even though, um, uh, you know, compassion and love just oozed out of him, uh, his temper would flare up in a way that I'd never seen uh, other than sort of an earthquake. Uh, it was, because when he was angry, he wasn't just a little bit angry. It was like everything was angry. <clears throat> and when it turned on you, my God. But a strange thing would happen. When he got angry at you, you would both be terrified in every way and perform uh, uh, sort of automatic bodily functions right there. <laughs> um, but also you'd be filled with ecstasy for no reason. And, you know, I had this embarrassment because one time he was yelling at me and, you know, rumbling like this and I was terrified and I was smiling and, and ecstatic at him. And I felt, you know, this is not right. I shouldn't be laughing while, he, while he's <laughs> yelling at me like that. Terrible. So um, I tried to hide that. <clears throat> but um, why am I talking about this? What? Oh, about Baba. Ah, that's all to lead up to that one story where Baba was in, his, in the days of his sadhana, of course, his main problem was anger. He had a lot of problem with, with anger. <clears throat> and um, at one stage of his sadhana, he, felt he was going through loads of anger. And he went to his guru and, and said, you know, there's a problem. And the guru simply said to him, that's not you. That's not you at all. Read Play of Consciousness, I think it's in there. It says, that's not you, that's not you at all. And, you know, sometimes you hear something and it, and it goes bing, 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 bing. And I realized that what that was saying is that whenever we go into those negative states, that's not you at all. That depressed person, that angry person, that jealous person, that terrified person, that's not you at all. Maybe the real you doesn't show up very often. But the real you is the one that's full of energy and full of joy. That's who the real you is. And this other thing is just an overlay, a cloud that hides the sun. And um, which is not to underestimate the um, 
the depth of the cloud sometimes. Uh, but yet, the real you is not the one that's angry, it's not the one that's paranoid, it's not the one that's jealous. Bija vadanam, meditate on the seed, the core. That's the secret, keep going back to that. <clears throat> and Shiva Sutras also say, Asanasta sukham rade nimajati. Asana is uh, a posture, as we saw last night. Um, it's the posture and it's also the seat you sit on. So it's saying here, um, sitting in his asana uh, of the self, he plunges into the ocean of bliss. Take your asana. An asana is uh, a thing you sit on, the posture you sit in it, and it's also the posture of your life. So if you sit in a firm asana of self-knowledge, then you plunge into bliss. What is the asana of your life? Is it an ever-shifting one? Is it moving here and there because it follows the mind around, it wants this, wants that, I want this, I want that. Your asana should be strong. Everyone who's successful in life has a very strong asana. You know, people who make a lot of money, they really want to make a lot of money. People who, who become famous movie stars, they really want to become famous movie stars. I shouldn't say this probably, but I was the uh, Swami in L.A. Uh, for a number of years. And uh, we had lots of um, aspiring actors coming in to the ashram. <clears throat> and um, L.A. is a very odd place, as you might imagine. Uh, everybody who was, uh, you know, the, the best-looking guy or girl in their high school class goes to L.A. to make it. Um, and so we have everybody there wanting to be actors, and they, um, <clears throat> they come up to me and say, you know, I'm going to get my big break, I'm going to auditions, I'm going to do it. And I had to say, I don't think so. The ones who are going to do that don't come to ashrams. So you, you're already wondering whether uh, that's the best thing, the only thing you want in your life. You also want God, so you're divided. Forget it, kid. Isn't that sad? <laughs> and really what I want to say is, well, you're greater than that, you know? Well, it could happen. It's not impossible. It never did happen, I have to say. Uh, but every one of them grew spiritually. Um, so whatever it is, that's our asana. Is that a terrible thing to say? Yeah, the ones who were successful already, they came, they came, uh, some of them did, yeah. The ones who were already famous remained famous. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. I'm talking about asana. So you have to know what your asana is. The mind is a monkey. The mind jumps from asana to asana. The mind looks around and says, what's that one sitting on? Mm, look, Manu's got a green one. I'll try that. What's green good for? Money. You know, they, and so it looks around and so it takes it on. But my belief is that we have to discover our asana. It's already there. 
It's not mind-born. We don't create it with our, our intellect. We have to discover what it is. At bottom, bija vadanam, the, at the basic core, the asana is one thing. Baba would call it the swadharma. This is the, the dharma of everyone. The swadharma is to know the self. This is the basic calling within every human heart, to know my true nature, to know that energy and that power and that joy that's deep within me. And a lot of us don't get around to it in this life. We get around to it a little bit, or, but then it starts to come out. And, and as we focus on that and make our asana in self-knowledge, then whatever else we're supposed to do emerges also. So, asanasta sukham when we focus on the self, we take our stance in the self, supreme bliss uh, comes about. <clears throat> and one other curious um, uh, sutra from, from, from the Shiva Sutras, here it is. <clears throat> I won't read the Sanskrit, but it says, when the notion of difference is destroyed, one develops the ability to create another universe merely by desiring to do so. How's that? That's a sutra I've never uh, used before in teaching. I stayed away from it. Why would I stay away from it? Should I just read it again? Yes? When the notion of difference is destroyed, in other words, when, when one sees consciousness everywhere, right? sees that everything is that one stuff, one develops the ability to create another universe merely by desiring to do so. Them's fighting words, man. What about that? But this is seeming to say that you become like God, right? That, um, that uh, like uh, a realized being, uh, like say Baba, uh, could then just create a universe off there. I'd like to have a little universe over there. Let there be light. In fact, the, the guy, the dude who created this one, I mean the girl, the woman who created this one, um, said, um, said, let there be light. <laughs> you know, so we could be just, you know, the creatures of some some realized being in another dimension that's just creating universes irresponsibly. You know? And what if he has some impurity or something? And just say, hey, he's able to create universes, but he got some hang-up. <laughs> well, look at this universe. Obviously a hung-up creator. <clears throat> no, I stay away from this because I, you know, uh, it, it, it's dangling psychic powers. You know, yogis are terrible people. They'll dangle anything to get you to do it. We visited, in our recent trip to India, we visited uh, Shirdi, where a great being named Sai Baba lived for many years, a very mysterious being. And Shirdi's remarkable because it's very powerful. When you go in there, the presence of the divine is very strong there. It's the only place we visited where it was comparable to Ganeshpuri. Maybe it was 0.7 below Ganeshpuri, but it was pretty good. So Sai Baba uh, was a great, great soul. And he used to say, 
Um, people would come to him. You know, in India, uh, they, uh, they don't just come for self-realization to a great being like that. They come for children and money and cures and all that kind of thing. Um, and I used to be very judgmental, thinking, oh, we are much purer seekers, and these people come for worldly ends. But after a while, I started to see, yeah, what the hell? <laughs> that actually, it's, it's pretty cool that um, to go to a saint for those things, that's pretty good. Um, and it's a sort of a relaxed attitude. But anyway, um, he was, uh, people were coming from, from miracles, and they still go to Shirdi. I was told, well, I'm not going to get into that. I was told that it's become the second most popular place of pilgrimage in India because people get their wishes fulfilled there. Don't all leave the room immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I could see your mind. <laughs> if I talk like this, we'll have to go to Shirdi on our next visit, won't we? <coughs> Too much dust. <laughs> but... Um, is it not to surety? No. Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> but um, he used to say, uh, they said, how come Maharaja, all these people come with all these worldly demands and, and so on. He said, I give them what they want in order that they may want what I want to give them. That's what he said. Very interesting remark. That you see, if he was saying, yes, come to this, the guru, the sage for what you want, and then eventually you'll go deeper and you'll, you'll get what the sage wants to give, which is self-knowledge. <clears throat> so so um, that was about cities. So this sutra, when the notion of difference is destroyed, one develops the ability to create another universe merely by desiring to do so. I think Bill was on the right track. That really what it's saying, uh, it's dangling this possibility, I don't know, which of you are megalomaniacs that want to create another universe? I'll create a universe and sport in it, like the Truman Show, right? Oh, I'll create. You know, but um, uh, I think it's more like it's saying that when we connect with the self, that we actually have the power to transform our life. Imagine if, if, if you didn't change a single external detail of your life, but you had the capacity to suddenly see it in a new way that made it full of joy and full of peace and full of love. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? And that's, I think, what the real city here is talking about. That you get freedom, you have the ability to, um, to see the whole world as a play. Baba would say the play of consciousness, a leela, a sport. And that the, the way we look at things is not fixed. The way you look at your life may in fact be just a knee-jerk reaction. It's not fixed. That you have the freedom to change your understanding when your understanding is dysfunctional. What do I mean by dysfunctional? I mean your understanding makes you miserable. If your life is making you miserable, it's because your understanding of it is making you miserable. And a certain level of freedom when you're connected with self, you can change and transform that understanding. And that's true of every situation. I've had innumerable situations uh, in my life where the, the situation seemed blocked and horrible. And then in meditation or some other way, a new understanding came 
which shifted the whole thing and re-energized it. And this can come up globally of our whole, whole life. This is what spiritual freedom is. <clears throat> Shaivism says the essence of, of, uh, of the state of enlightenment is svatantriya, or freedom. And the essence of freedom is not that, that a great being can just do anything, you know, machine gun whoever he wants and do this and steal money there and do all that kind of stuff and, and uh, um, what was it yesterday, smuggle uh, dollars or whatever. Um, that's not the sign of freedom. The freedom is that he has a freedom within himself. He's not compromised by externals. He's not compromised by his own desires and fears, but he has freedom uh, within himself. And that comes when we focus on the self, when we know the self. So the bottom line here, I'll leave it at that for now. The bottom line here is this capacity for joy is within every one of us. Shaivism says our essential nature is consciousness. And it's only because we haven't gone deep enough. We've been content so far uh, to live like machines in the conditioning that we've been given with the attitudes that our parents instilled in us or the attitudes that we reacted to the attitudes that our parents instilled in us. Still a mechanical reaction. We haven't discovered what we really think, who we really are, what our real nature is. And we've stayed on the, the sort of superficial social level of our culture. We have to go deeper. And each of us has to go deeper inside our own space, in our own hearts, in our own way, in our own time, in our own meditation. And Shaivism tells us gloriously that when we do go deep enough, we will find our true nature. And our true nature is not different from the nature of the great beings, of Baba, or the Buddha, or Jesus. Easter Sunday, we have to remember Jesus. <clears throat> and what a great being like Jesus uh, teaches us is not how to be beaten to a pulp and, uh, you know, all that suffering, but he teaches us about our true nature. And that's what the real essence of that is. And when he teaches us about resurrection, it's about resurrecting that energy within us, the flagging spirit, the dryness, the boredom, the misery of, of uh, life when it becomes material, and re-energizing with, that, with the, uh, the power of the spirit. And that's within every one of us. And that's what the goal of our meditation is. So be jalfadanam, meditate on the seed. And we'll be meditating uh, in a little while. And what are we doing now? So once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all. Thank you.